y'all. This is Zoe Midler. Thanks for tuning in to the Not A Rocking Chair Librarian podcast. This is episode 21, Creating an Attitude of Skepticism, featuring Jennifer Lagarde and Darren Hudgens. Yes, that's right. The authors of Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News are my guests. Jennifer is better known to many of us in the K-12 librarianship world as Library Girl. Jennifer works with educators worldwide to develop innovative instructional practices. She has served as a classroom teacher, teacher librarian, digital teaching and learning specialist, and consultant for the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction and the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation. Jennifer is a tireless advocate for K-12 librarians and librarianship. One of my favorite library girl presentations is called Brains, How to Survive the Zombie Librarian Apocalypse. And if you've never seen that slide deck, I highly encourage you to visit Jennifer's website, librarygirl, all one word, dot net, N-E-T, librarygirl.net. Uh, Jennifer posts all of her presentations there and you can access them. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer Lagarde, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-L-A-G-A-R-D-E. Darren Hudgens is former secondary teacher, a district coach, a staff developer, speaker, facilitator, developer of technology integration programs, and a youth coach. Currently, Darren is the CEO of Think, Do, Thrive, and works with educators, school leaders, district and school organizations to help them build upon their culture, strengthen human capacity, and inspire the souls of social servants. You can follow Darren on Twitter at dhudgens, at D-H-U-D-G-I-N-S. You can always find me on Twitter at zmidler, at Z-M-I-D-L-E-R. Just a heads up, this episode has a running time of close to an hour, and that's because we had a fantastic conversation, and I wasn't about to edit out a minute of these two incredibly smart and informative thought leaders. Again, the title of their book is Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News, and is available on Amazon, of course. Without further ado, here are Jennifer and Darren. Smile, Jennifer. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Lagarde. I am a former teacher librarian and digital teaching and learning specialist who spent most of that time in North Carolina, which accounts for this accent. But uh, currently I work with teacher librarians and teachers and principals in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Olympia, Washington, where I work, drink lots of coffee and read as many books as I can get a hold of. And once again, I get to follow that. I'm Darren Hudgens. Uh, I am a former secondary teacher. Uh, I, uh, well, I mean, to be more specific, uh, both in CTE and social studies. And then I'm also a former uh, director of instructional technology for a nonprofit where I did all kinds of workshops and ran events. And now I'm a uh, full-time consultant um, with a company I call Think, Do, and Thrive. And uh, I also live in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm uh, just really, really excited to be here. Great. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it for your taking time to join me today. And um, congratulations on your book, Fact Versus Fiction, Teaching Critical Thinking Skills in the Age of Fake News. I, I have to confess, I'm a longtime Jennifer follower, um, library girl follower, and when I had heard that um, Jennifer, you and Darren had written this book, I immediately went out and bought it. Um, and the book is just incredibly timely and relevant. And I kept having these yes and true and <laughs> moments as I read it. 
That sounds like our writing process. It was. I mean, I was thinking out loud and processing out loud, and my husband was like, "What are you reading over there?" Um, but what I what I really appreciate about the book, I appreciated so much about it. But what I really appreciate about it is the balance that you struck between illustrating the issues and the problems around information literacy and providing those practical and actionable advice, ideas, and lessons we can help, we can use to help our students become more discerning consumers of information. Um, the problem of fake news is not insurmountable. And to quote the book, it says, it's complicated, but it's not impossible. And that was really reassuring to me because I feel like we are just swimming in this issue right now, especially in our school district, um, Boulder Valley School District. So I'm curious first how this collaboration came about and maybe if you could talk to us about why you decided to go after this particular topic. Darren, I'm gonna let you start. With yeah, that I, I kind of thought, it, well, so I was it a little around 2016, I got asked to do a presentation in North Carolina. And whenever you, you get asked to do that, you're kind of processing like, well, what do I want to present on? And luckily these people trusted me and they said, you know, do kind of whatever you're passionate about and what you're you know looking at. And at the time I was spending a lot of time looking at, uh, you know, the, the really fresh in the news, fake news term. Um, and I was noticing all of these shifts. And as I alluded to in my introduction, um, I have a background of, of social studies and from a social studies perspective, I was kind of twisted on this, that, that people were, were, were panicking about it. Cause I was like, this has been around for a really, really long time. This isn't new. It's just been tweaked a lot with the technology and the social media part. And then a, a secondary piece for me is I have two young boys and I was thinking, what kind of a world are they going to be in if we can't uh, help them uh, kind of get to that truth or get to that baseline where they can feel like they're making an educated decision? Um, so I did that presentation, and apparently uh, there were only nine people who uh, were also having that same interest as I was at the time. But fortunately, one of my uh, good friends who I respect so much uh, attended that uh, workshop and uh, she's here with us on this call today and she said to me oh my gosh Darren you made me think about so many things this is fantastic uh, can I use some of the stuff and tweak it and... I think my exact words were consider all of this stolen I'm about to okay use okay yeah, I think I, yeah that's true. <laughs> I was I was trying to put a, a media filter on it <laughs> So that's our first spin of this podcast. Uh, no. Um, anyway, she she did and took it on the road with her wonderful following and just, you know, kind of vetted it in some ways. I mean, a lot of people gave her all kinds of feedback and comments, and I'm sure uh, Jennifer will speak to that. But, uh, um, well, yeah, why don't you – actually, that seems like a natural thing. Why don't you take it from there? What happened yeah. after that? So I was one of the nine lucky people to attend the very best session at NC Ties that year. <laughs> and I, I mean that really sincerely. I walked out of that room thinking, oh, my gosh, everything I think I know about this is wrong. Or everything I think I know about this needs to be updated. And also really inspired by the idea that as teacher librarians and folks who are already in the business of source evaluation, how we could really 
pick up the mantle of this and make a difference for our school, for our kids, number one, but also lead the way um, to help, uh, I think, um, I, what's the word I'm looking for, help um, identify and also combat a challenge that is really, uh, you know, the, at the time was and still is something we're all really facing right now. So I got excited about that work and was able to take, uh, you know, every time I would go to a different conference or a school different district, I would do a different iteration and share that with Darren. And then, gosh, I guess it must have been the summer of 2016 about, gosh, what would you say, Darren, two or three months later, I got an email from ISTE asking me if I would be interested in writing a book for their Digital Age Librarian series. And my quick answer was no. I was in the middle of moving across the country. I was, you know, had a lot going on. That just didn't seem like something I was interested in. But then literally I got that email while sitting in the cab of a U-Haul truck in the state of Nebraska as my husband and I were moving across country. And I thought, huh, you know, maybe I would like to do this, but only if Darren would be interested and only if we could write a book about this. Got it. I got you. Sorry, I have a little bit of a hesitation here with your feed, Jennifer. I don't know if you can hear me. It looks like she just froze up. Yeah, she looks like she just completely froze up. She might have maybe. Middle, no, no, yeah, you're back. Froze up in the middle of Nebraska. <laughs> okay, well, as one is one, which makes that's, sense. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's an apt metaphor, but. So I emailed Darren and said, hey, Darren, would you be interested in doing this with me? And he foolishly said yes. <laughs> and so that's how this happened, really. And a year and a half later, because it took us that long, you know, and I don't mean that in a sarcastic mm-hmm. way. The The research part of this was dense, you know. it's a, um, It took us that long to really put together our thoughts and to gather all the information we needed to do what we thought was a... Uh, a just job of the topic. Well, and I feel like, I don't know about you, and, and this is also part of the news consumer issue or just, you know, teachers and students and all this. I mean, we could have written, what, three volumes of this. Yes. I mean, we were yeah. trying to decide, like, <laughs> what is the pertinent stuff that is tangible that people can do right now um, about it? But, I mean, it, it, I mean, it evolves even you know, at this moment, so. Yeah, and also in a way that wasn't going to um, turn people off from the topic because people are so polarized around the, you know, even the term fake news elicits very strong responses from people. We wanted to address the issues head on and be brave in what we were asking people to do while also hoping that everyone felt like they had a seat at our table, regardless of their ideology. Yes. I mean, for me, the thing that I was so surprised that you were able to do was to do this in a concise way. I mean, this isn't a rambling theoretical treatise on misinformation, disinformation, and fake news. I mean, I just felt like I had like a little manifesto in my hand and I could take this and this was going to be immediately a part of any toolbox I was going to be using. So, I mean, I'm surprised it took a year and a half. I mean, to me, that seems like a really quick turn time. So congratulations. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, having never done it before, that felt like I, I, we walked into it at least, I don't want to speak for you, Darren, but I walked into it really confidently thinking, eh, 
you know, this is like, what, five or six blog posts, really? You know, this yeah. is easy peasy, right? And then it wasn't, you know, it, it was hard. It, and it also, but what it, but it was worthy. You know, we felt like it was yeah. worthy. We wanted to do it justice. And also, I'd say that, um, you know, uh, procrastination is in both of our DNA, too. So <laughs> deadlines helped us as well. Well, and, and the more... I mean, more recently, I've had some time to kind of metacognate about the whole process and looking back and being like, what really happened? And, and we kind of, like the challenges for consumer in news right now, there's like kind of like four main things, which is you have information overload, you've got a, a crisis of authenticity, mm -hmm. there's this whole speed and accuracy issue and overcoming your own biases. I felt like we went through those four things mm. in this process. I mean, we were both swamped with all kinds of things we were doing with our other jobs, sure. trying to write it. So we had all this, I would call it information overload, just because you know, you know, when you try to get in and unpack something and, and really write about it, you can't let all that other noise get in there, but yeah. it, it just naturally does. Uh, we're both sitting here going, are we the experts to be able to write about this? Like, why aren't other people right. writing these kinds of books? And and we were, I mean, sometimes it was like, Jennifer, you are perfect for this. And she said the same thing to me. And so we were trying to build each other for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're trying to figure out, like, what is the right thing, which is that whole speed and accuracy. And we, were, we didn't feel like we were being very quick at it. Um, but yet we wanted to get it out there because ISTE's like, hey, this is going and, 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 and then the last part is we both did, we both have biases. I mean, yeah. I've got a history bias and a psychology bias and Jennifer's got a media literacy and media specialist librarian bias. And, you know, she was coming from the East coast, but had influences on the West coast and I'm coming from, you know, this thing. And, and so we, we both jockeyed back and forth on how to do it. And, you know, we're, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I know, well, I won't speak for Jennifer, but I'm well, I will just add, I agree with everything Darren has said and always says, I mean, I agree. I just nod <laughs> my thoughts, but I'm doing also, the same thing. <laughs> I mean, that's just welcome to my world. But oh, uh, I also think that it was really important to us to make it actionable. Mm -hmm. yes. We wanted very much to identify the problem because we felt like a call to arms was necessary. Yeah. We understand that, you know, it's kind of impossible to learn and, and internalize information that you don't care about. So we wanted to help educators care about this as much as we did. But we also wanted to not just say, okay, here's a huge problem. Have fun, y'all. We yeah, wanted to, luck. yeah, exactly. <laughs> we wanted to make it actionable with tools and resources so that people reading the book could feel like there was a way for them to get started right away. Well, I think, I mean, the whole topic is such a moving target, right? I yeah. mean, for anybody yep. to take a stab at it is a, a brave thing because the minute you write it, it's going to be outdated. But I don't find that with the stuff that you have in there. And I have to tell you, I failed miserably on the credibility tests when you put the images of the phones up on those pages. And I just was like, okay, this is going to be relevant for a while, right? And I, so I do, I mean, I, I do think it's a moving target, but I think it was, it, it was incredibly, well, there was a lot of practical advice and, it, and it, it's going to last for a while. I mean, I know people are going to come back and say, when are you going to write the next edition or when are you going to update it? But, um, but I, I mean, like I said, I, have, I found it, like you said, very actionable right now. So, you know, greatly appreciated uh, the effort that went into making it, you know, have some sticky 
stickiness for a while here, which is important. Thank I think. you. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Um, one of the things that really struck me in the book, too, was, you know, you talk about um, social media being a tool of democracy. And I and before we even started this podcast recording, I told you I'm going to steal that because I just think it's such, such a great um, it just it, it really gets my head around it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. And you provide a number of examples in the book that demonstrate the powerful and positive impact citizen journalism and social media can have when they're combined and how they can affect really positive change. Um, so how do you recommend we engage um, with parents that want to ban access or limit access to Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Discord? Because they only are focusing, you know, really on the abuses of the tool or how, yeah. may, or maybe how a student, maybe a student of theirs had a bad interaction. And how do we get them involved in a, in a really constructive and respectful conversation? I think that's one of the biggest challenges we see right now, especially as we see the, you know, the proliferation of devices at both a one-to-one -one program level and the fact that they're all carrying around their phones with them. I mean, those are just, you know, those are personal devices. So I don't know if you have any insights into that and, and if you've experienced it. Well, the, the <clears throat> excuse me about uh, the social media is a conduit of us. And so in, in my whole piece, like, like I have a sophomore who's getting ready to drive and I just, you know, we've used this analogy for the internet before, but I think it, it goes even more into to this news media, how they're being influenced. And, and that is we put kids through this huge, uh, hoop jumping, uh, procedure to, to drive, you know, they have to take tests. They have to essentially kind of get proctored and guided by people. We offer, all of these opportunities and we don't let them on the road unless they jump certain hoops. But when it comes to the internet, uh, when it comes to these devices, it's really, can you afford them? And if you can afford them and you have access, then you're just open to this highway where anything and everything can kind of get to you. And I, I think it's, uh, we're doing our kids a disservice. Uh, I think we're doing our teachers a disservice as well if we don't uh, spend some time teaching them how to use what's, you know, the most impactful devices uh, that are, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say the wheel's not a big deal, and I'm not going to say the printing press and all those kinds of things, but I mean, these are these are devices with power we've never had before, um, and I feel like we just let kids, you know, figure it out on your own. That kind of thing. So yeah. let Jennifer pick up on that. I, you know, I was going to say too often in my experience, the goal of one-to-one -one programs has just been to get a device in people's hands when really the goals of those prog programs have to be, what are we going to do with them? How are we going to engage our communities around them? How are we going to grow and raise better people as a result of having them, et cetera. And then um, getting those devices in a child's hand or in, at home with parents, et cetera, becomes so much more meaningful. That being said, I think our opinions around anything are only as good and as well-rounded as our experiences with them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of the most effective uh, strategies for getting parents and even district folks who might be apt to want to block social media in school is to provide them with opportunities to not only use those things for good, 
but also in an environment that is safe and that is um, community-based. So what I mean around that is, for example, in my old district, we had um, parent uh, Twitter chats with our district-level leaders that were uh, really poorly attended at the beginning. And our district level folks couldn't understand why parents just weren't wanting to jump on the Twitter and talk to them in the same way that teachers were using Twitter to, um, it, to expand their own learning. And so one of the things that we realized very quickly is that our, not only were our parent was our parent community not really on Twitter, but also they had some strongly held beliefs about the dumpster fire that can be Twitter and social media, and they didn't really want a part of that, or they were afraid to do it on their own. So we held on the nights of these Twitter chats, which are supposed to be you know, um, asynchronous, mm -hmm. uh, it, do it anywhere you want to uh, kind of events. We held parent nights at the schools where teachers came and parents all gathered together with some food and their kids in another room playing and learned how to do the live tweet with support mm -hmm. and engage in the conversation that was supposed to be virtual, but with a literal um community of support around them to say, it's okay, go ahead and post tweet now. Are you sure about that? Oh, here's something you could do. Folks there to sort of hold their hands mm -hmm. in that first couple, during those first couple of iterations of it. And so I think that model of saying, you know, instead of saying, hey, we want all our kids to be using this social media and here sign this form and let them do it. And that's, that's the only engagement we have is let's, you know, I think it's really effective when we can invite the community in to show them how they can be a part of using social media in a positive way. They get an understanding of what responsible, productive um, contributions to our world with those tools can be. And so then when we say we want to engage our kids in this same kind of learning, but in a safe way, and you all can help us now because you're experts at it, too. I think we're far more likely to get support. And in those same kinds of um, community outreach, I think it's imperative we invite our district leaders to be a part of that. Our, our, our non-instructional district folks, our network engineers, our technical people to come in and under the guise of, can you help us make this work, have them see the good that their work does and how opening up that actually um, helps them achieve a larger mission in their work. So sometimes it's just about showing and sharing and building community around those things first so that that way when we're ready to get kids involved, everybody's on board and can see the compelling why behind it. And you're building communication and empathy for when those times, when we do have the disagreements, yes. uh, we do have the struggles, there's some, uh, I don't know what you, what, what do you call it? You built up some. Um... Well, you, you definitely, have, you've given them context and continuity. It's not just, yeah, yeah you know, they, they, I mean, what you said was right. You know, our, our opinions, you're basically, you're changing the opinion through the experience, right? Because I think a lot yep. of times folks are going into this with just the opinion and never having any, having had any real experience with the tools. Right. Yeah. And oftentimes it's easy to demonize a group that doesn't want to do the same thing you do. Oh, those crazy parents or oh, those evil network engineers. But when those crazy parents have a name, 
who you sat down with and, and enjoyed a fun evening or the network engineer is named Joe, you know, it's, it's no longer, well, they're on one side and we're on another side. We're all on the same side. We just maybe have different opinions about how to get there. So when you build that community and um, amongst those folks, I think it's just easier to, to do the work together instead of feeling like you have to do it in spite of someone else. You're never gonna get everyone, right. but the more people you can get there, the more likely you are to be able to achieve your goals for kids. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant idea. I like that a lot. Okay, I've written that one down for sure. <laughs> Take it. That goes in the next book, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah. And look at us, Karen. Even before we're done with our first cup of coffee. Really good. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So the other question I had for you was uh, initially, you know, digital and digital citizenship instruction was taught exclusively by teacher librarians, and and that made sense back in the day because. That was the only place, you know, in the library where you could get a, get to a computer or there was a tech lab where a librarian was in charge. But as, you know, devices have prol proliferated and we've seen one-to-one -one programs and cell phones, you know, even digital citizenship instruction is no longer the sole responsibility of teacher librarians. Thank you very much. That's great news. Um, you know, classroom teachers are integrating it into their instructional practices. It's, you know, done in hopefully a more contextually relevant way. So I'm curious, do you think um, teaching information literacy will follow that same path? It, you know, it will sort of stream out of the library and in sort of in the, you know, right now it's in, a lot of it's in the teacher librarian's hands and it's not always done contextually. Do you think it's gonna follow sort of that same path? It'll become maybe more embedded and at point of need. And, and how can the teacher librarian support that shift if, if you think that shift is, is necessary? Well, I'm going to jump in here, Darren, and just yeah, say... Yeah, I knew. I saw the fire <laughs> Yeah, you can see my... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, first of all, I would just... My first immediate response is, gosh, I hope so. But when I think about it a little bit, then I think the real answer is that that shift has to take place. Yes. That's an inevitability if um, we're really going to tackle this issue with any kind of fidelity. If we're really going to dent the universe and write a shift that so many of us recognize has veered off course, mm -hmm. then it can't just be one person, whether it's the teacher librarian or the social studies teacher or, you know, the guidance counselor or whatever. It can't just be one person's responsibility to administer a few online modules at, during sixth grade and then check, 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 mm -hmm. we're done. You know, it has to be an integrated part of just what kids do as they access information because research is no longer a skill that is limited to one um, uh, course you know it's not just that we do a research project in science now and once our we've filled up our trifold board we're done okay. research is a daily um, ritual that our kids, whether they know it or not, go through when they make decisions about what, whether or not to grab their umbrella, about um, which, you know, uh, app they're going to purchase when they read reviews or whatever. You know, we research every single day to make decisions about our daily life, and we need to understand um, 
that all of that is media that we're consuming that someone in that process is trying to either convince us of something or sell us something or both. Mm -hmm. And at, in that transaction, we have a responsibility to do our part, which is to um, check for reliability, to understand who benefits from our consumption, et cetera, et cetera, be skeptical, to be a digital detective mm -hmm. whenever we open our device, whether that's a laptop or a mobile phone or whatever. And if that's going, if we're going to just have our kids develop those dispositions, then everyone has to be um, modeling that and doing that in their courses. And the rub, I think, for me, then, as I see this in schools, is not even the reality that teachers are like, well, golly, where do I fit this in, mm -hmm. um, given all the current responsibilities, but also, I don't know that all the adults in our buildings have these skills as well. You know, you mentioned um, your score on the self-assessment in fact versus <laughs> fiction, and I, I should have jumped in there and said, well, welcome to the club. When we <laughs> do this in workshops around the country, that is what happens over and over and over again folks who consider themselves pretty savvy when it comes to media literacy are like, holy smokes, mm -hmm. I struggled with this. So also, also yeah. I got to cut you off. Go for it. <laughs> You're tweeting your own horn because she created these things. And so she's like the mad scientist. She's all excited <laughs> because she put fangs on some things and all that. And she's duped people. So, she feels like the professional troll right now, and so that you're getting the, you're getting this other side though. I would so. yeah. I would expect nothing less from the woman who has a presentation that talks about zombie librarians. Absolutely. So that, that, so this, no. this question this question was absolutely designed for this response. <laughs> well, you know, I I will say in my own defense. While I certainly get some pleasure out of all of that. Um, I think really, you know, that self-assessment was designed to elicit a response in which educators, um, you know, experienced, I guess, a wake-up call sure. of, you know, this stuff has changed. I was thinking about this last night, as a matter of fact, you know, when I did my national boards, one of the lessons that I submitted um, was around media literacy, and the focus of that lesson was Boolean search strategies. <sighs> and um evaluating oh. domains like oh, you know right okay so you know we all evolve right as learners and thinkers uh, and i unfortunately though we still have media literacy instruction like that going on in our schools and it's it's just it's not appropriate to what is what the information that our kids are um, experiencing now. So we have to change if we're going to really prepare them for the world they live in now. So and I can, I'm, and I'm going to be the doom and gloom on that because, <laughs> uh, yes, to everything you said, but unless we fundamentally change how we do school, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I, I, I obviously participated in, and helped write this book because I believe we can change it. Yeah. But with the test obsession stuff mm. that's going on with the, you know, like I'm also spending a lot of time right now doing a bunch of stuff with SEL yeah. and I feel like they're parallel universes. Like they're both massively important in an economy or a job shift that has changed since the 1960s where 
you know, blue collar standing, doing the same road thing every day is going down, down, down and knowledge work demands are going up, up, up. We're still, you know, teaching kids under that assembly line kind of process. And until we build an environment where we're doing more inquiry based or project based or things where you're weaving in all these together on a consistent basis. Um, I think we're really going to struggle because we're back to what Jennifer talked about is, well, we need to do an SEL lesson and let's check these boxes and then we're done. Mm -hmm. And we need to do a media literacy lesson and, Oh, they analyzed and, and evaluated this paragraph. Okay. Well now they know how to do it. Well, it takes a lot of time and it, it, it and as we said that the tools and the technology keeps changing and how they're pushing out this information that's making us not understand what's going on that is changing by the minute yeah. i mean from the moment jen and i wrote the book and we've talked about like deep fakes and things like that the mm-hmm. technology's gotten almost i think it's a thousand times better yeah. in yeah. just the short time that it's come out are we setting kids up to be able to decipher stuff like that? And that, that's just one point. I mean, we could talk about a bunch, but I, I really think, and I know Jennifer believes that the media specialists should take the mantle and, you know, they should be the ones pushing this kind of revolution in education. I think it's gotta be all of us. Yeah. Uh, whoever leads it, I don't care. We just need to do it. Um, but until we fundamentally change those things and, and the last point is to what Jen's saying is I'm not sure unless the adults begin to understand the need, uh, it's gonna change. Um, because unfortunately, um, kids do not have the, the agency or the voice to determine, you know, how their education is going to go. Um, they do a little bit, but I'm, I'm not as, I guess, positive about that. Um, I remember when I, I actually participated in the Twitter chat you guys led on the book. And I know one of the things that I said is that I, I can't remember the question you guys asked. You asked so many great questions. It was it was almost like a, an assessment <laughs> on some level with the Twitter chat. But I remember there was a, some question about um, the librarian's role in all this. And I just feel like, you know, just just as we did with digital citizenship, I do think teacher librarians are uniquely positioned to be at the yeah. forefront and sort of stay at the forefront. But just like with digital citizenship and, um, you know, just research process and research strategy instruction, it's something that we should be partnering with all the time whenever possible with the teachers, Um, you know, making it contextually relevant. Because for me, it wasn't it was almost like, um, yeah, I was teaching the kids and that was great. But I always was amazed by how much the teachers were getting out of that opportunity as well. Like you said, the adults don't really don't know what they don't know. And and that's true for some of our teachers. So this was just this great moment to, you know, have them see you as somebody who could support them and partner with them. And they could go to, to ask the questions that they wouldn't maybe ask out loud. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I always frame it around the phrase, you know, it's an opportunity and an obligation Mm -hmm. for teacher librarians who are constantly a position in peril, who in addition to their work also have to constantly prove their worth. I think taking the lead in a situation like this is an opportunity to show relevancy, to show um, that we're, you know, not, outdated that we are the skills that we have um, are not only relevant but necessary in today's world but also it's an opportunity to speak to Darren's point a little bit 
um, to model what school should be like because our work, you know, because we're not beholden to the test in the same way mm -hmm. that a classroom teacher is, um, we have an obligation, I think, to um, to model the real work of school, which is not to raise test scores, but to raise good humans. Mm -hmm. And so this is, an, you know, that's our obligation. That's our charge. So mm -hmm. I do feel like, you know, the teacher librarians have an opportunity and obligation to take the lead. But to speak to your point, Zoe, I don't think that we're going to be able to make a dent unless everyone yeah. um, is on board. And this just becomes about the culture of what we do as learners, not just the thing we do in one class. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things that I really got out of the book too, is that, you know, I think we're at a point, we're at this inflection point where we have to go beyond those credibility checklists. That, yes. Right. You know, like I, I'm, I mean, I did that a lot because back when I was teaching and I was with students, the thing was to find the hoax websites. Yeah. Now we have an information mm -hmm. environment that's much more dynamic. Things are kind of coming to them from, you know, at from a bunch of different directions. So I just feel like I, I still see a lot of people doing this and talking about this credibility checklist. And I'm not saying they're not important. I get their, you know, I get their worth, but I do think we're, we're kind of moving beyond that point now. I, I want, yeah, do you yeah. agree? Yeah. I mean, we feel the same way. I think those protocols, um, for determining credibility can be certainly useful on one, you know, at a certain point in the arc of learning you know yeah. that's one tool to put in a child's tool belt but it can't be the only thing we arm them with and then send them on their way i agree okay do i have time for one last quick question or do y'all sure. need to go okay i mean darren i'm speaking for you, Are you okay, <laughs> oh, absolutely. okay so my last question is and i don't even know if we can answer this question but um and I'm going to date myself here, but, you know, I never questioned um, when I was a teenager, tween, young adult, I never questioned my local TV channel news or Walter Cronkite or the 60 Minutes team. Those were my main sources for information. And so what's different about them as a source of information versus a YouTube channel that a student follows to get all their info? And how can we help students develop a healthy skepticism? Because skepticism? I don't know that I even had it. You know, when I was younger, what what is what do you think has changed? Well, for one, your context. I mean, you just you're older, and you have a <laughs> lot more stuff in the to question and look at. Uh, number two, it would be uh, I kind of alluded to it earlier: information overload. Back then, when Walter Cronkite, there were you know three channels, yeah. two channels. Um, you watched what your parents mm -hmm. watched. Mm -hmm. um, the second part is really about legitimacy. I mean, the dollar bill that you have in your pocket, hopefully, uh, is just paper. I mean, it, it, why do we trust it? What do we have? There, there's legitimacy behind that, and that's where all power comes from. Um, the difficult part now is just with that, with that overload of information, there becomes that crisis of authenticity. Like, okay, who's real, who's not? Um, we know for a fact that there are there are machines that are sending out things now that that aren't even, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're 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 fabricated by people to try to get more clicks and make money that way. Um, I was telling Jen something I learned uh, just a couple weeks ago that. There used to be a division, for example, in newspapers. There was a thing called a firewall, and, and I always think of that with 
the literal firewall in a building or the firewall when it comes to, to the internet. And, and um, they actually called it the firewall in news. And so you had one side that was about uh, ads, uh, ad revenue, and that was their job was to, to help pay for the, the paper. And then you had another side that were, they were journalists and they, they weren't dictated by money. Mm-hmm. They you could write whatever they wanted. Um, and though that line, that very thick line has, because people aren't, uh, or they have a lot more choices. They don't just watch CBS or they don't just watch, you know, NPR or something. There's all these other choices. Everybody's fighting now for that click or that viewer. And that line that used to divide the two has been pulled away because now these ad revenue folks are using the same journalistic ideas or tricks as the journalists did, and we can't decipher between the two very well. And so when you get somebody who validates what you believe and those biases, you're like, yeah, I like this. This is great. But they might necessarily might not be telling you the truth or they might be, you know, twisting the truth. And then in the other side of it is there's just so much. How do you like if like if Jen tells me because I trust Jen, if she says, hey, Darren, you should check this thing out. I'm going to go check it out and I'm going to believe it because Jen told me it. But if Jen didn't do the research, if Jen just saw the headline and was like, this is cool. That sounds right up our alley. I'm going to still believe it because it came from Jen. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily, she, she didn't maybe bet it or didn't go through it. And so all that mirage of stuff I just said, I think that leads to this. Uh, there is no one conduit to the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, that truth evolves. And it makes this journey that much more difficult. Somewhere along the line, consciously or not, we all made the decision that we are no longer willing to pay for information in traditional ways. You know, whether that means subscribing to a newspaper or um, paying for cable television or, you know, whatever those things are, we all decided that information was not something we were willing to open our wallets for. And whether we knew it or not, what we were then agreed to do was to pay for it in other ways, Mm -hmm. which is through the clickbait advertising, Mm -hmm. the having to, um, you know, wade through the mountains and mountains and mountains of information that comes from now the competition that exists between, um, traditional journalists and citizen journalists and um, the folks who actually make a living creating actual fake news stories to fool us, et cetera. We have made that bargain. You know, that has already happened. Mm -hmm. So therefore the landscape um, that we find ourselves navigating to find information, I I don't think we ever put that genie back in the bottle. I think we are, you know, at this point, that's the world we live in. And since we've made that decision, um, while also still somehow harboring this belief that we all have the right to a free and fair press that should be um, completely neutral, et cetera, uh, the onus is on us to develop some attitudes and skills 
um, to be able to sift through now the new landscape that we've created. And to get to your get back to your question a little bit, um, what I would say is that I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think that at the youngest ages, that's really our job is to create dispositions, to mm -hmm. create an attitude of skepticism, to put kids um, in a world where being a detective is their first reaction to any source of information. And I think we get there by modeling that constantly instead of just pulling up the YouTube video and say, hey, we're all going to watch this video on this. Mm -hmm modeling. Okay. So who is it who posted this video? Gosh, I wonder if I trust that person. Let me look them up a little bit, you know, doing that stuff for kids in a, not in a, here's a, what you have to do protocol in order to pass the assessment on this unit, but modeling it constantly as what we do when we are um, bumping up against a new source of information. Um, and telling kids, this is important. This is, I'm doing it because this matters. I'm doing it because that's what smart people do. And we are smart people. So that's what we're doing. You know, just creating this disposition in kids where the first thing they do, even without thinking is to ask the question, is this reliable? Should I trust this? As kids get a little bit older, then there's some bigger questions to be asked around that. You know, um, I work with uh, some librarians, uh, working with a librarian right now who's doing this with his fourth graders. And in a very um, uh, interesting, smart, and also I think uh, appropriate way for fourth graders, he's talking to them about confirmation bias and why do I want to believe this story but not this story? And kids are remarkably insightful. Um, they may not know the language around confirmation bias that they can recognize, oh, this story makes me feel good, so I want to believe that it's true. Whereas something that doesn't sound like what my parents say or what I've heard before makes me feel like I shouldn't believe it, etc. Those kinds of processes for our younger kids, I think are really important so that they get a handle of what it just what their role is as information consumers because information consumption isn't passive anymore. It can no longer just be sitting around and trusting what Walter Cronkite says. <laughs> now we have a job, you know, since we don't we won't pay for the information anymore, we now have a job to do in that transaction. So then as kids get older, then we can have more robust conversations about what's what or who is the commodity online, what's really being sold, what or who is being sold, who benefits from the narratives around these stories. If we all have biases, then we have to recognize that no matter who is putting out the information and who most benefits and how do we use triangulation as a tool to get to um, you know, the, the primary source, the, the source that first published this as opposed to just where we saw it first, because those are very different things. But for our kids, they don't necessarily understand that where they've seen it posted is not the primary source right. and that it requires some digging. So all of those skills get built along the arc of information literacy, but I think it starts with at the earliest age, just creating that disposition of skepticism. I agree. Absolutely. Can I, can I add one little story and maybe, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cause I was thinking about it when you, 
we're talking about both Jen and I have a friend, his name is Tim Lauer and he was a, a, a principal at an elementary school. Um, but at the time he, he told the story and this is early days of the internet when blogging, you know, web 2.0 was really new and he, he kind of jumped on board and he did a project and I, maybe Jen can help me with it, but, um, it was something like he was teaching K through two, something like that. One of those early, early grades. And he had the kids do a lesson on, um, on bees and they wrote this report and they published it with the idea that like they were going to put it out as a blog post and we're going to get people to comment on it. And so they spent all this time building this thing. They were really proud of it. They had pictures, they had, you know, had helped write it and the whole thing. And when they, they pushed it out, they started getting, you know, comments and he, he, they were all excited about it, except one day they got a, um, a comment from, and I will butcher this. So I'm hoping one of you two can help me. Uh, is it, is it a, a, a peace theologist or something like people who study bees? I, I, oh goodness! I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. We'll just say um, they got a comment from a bee expert. Yeah, a bee SME, a bee uh, subject matter expert. Anyway, the bee expert said, "Hey, this is fantastic. I love what you've done, but this is not a bee." Oh, and wow. he then posted something about what it was. And so Tim said, as the teacher, he was like, oh my gosh, I have to move on to my curriculum. Like, you know, like I got to keep moving on. And he's like, or this is an opportunity for me to go back to the kids. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it back on them. And I'm going to say, what do you want to do? And so the next day he went to them and he said, hey, we've got a problem. We've got a real problem here. We've posted this thing online. And it's not accurate. And here's what this person said. And uh, I don't remember, honestly, uh, if they had that gentleman on and they, you know, kind of Skyped him in again. This is early internet, so I don't know how that was going. But he basically pitched it to the kids, and the kids were mortified. Mm. And they were like, oh, my gosh, we have to fix this. And to Jen's point... They did fix it. They got, and I think that is a very mm-hmm. uh, both implicit and explicit way to show them like the truth does matter. They mm-hmm. do care about it. Mm-hmm. You're starting to get them to think these things matter when we publish things online. And then that leads to that same arc Jen was talking about. Yeah. She made me think of it, and I was just like, I got to tell the story because it was really fantastic. <laughs> I've forgotten but, about that, but I love yeah. that, that story, and I love Tim Lauer, so I hope yeah. we'll do this. Since we've yeah, got, we all do. He's got the presidents of the Tim Lauer fan club on yes. the air right now. So. Amen. Um, Jennifer and Darren, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me today. This was super informative. I feel like I got this little private lesson with you guys, um, but I will definitely be sharing this with the world. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to have you guys stay on the Google Hangout as I stop our recording for a second. Um, So hang on for just a second.